You have located Geekfest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. From a future where men must hide underground has come a machine wrapped in flesh who kills but cannot be killed. Arnold Schwarzenegger is Terminator, an assassin from the 21st century sent back through time. His target is a woman who holds the key to the future. Her only hope is a soldier who has hunted the Terminator from the future into the present. Not a man. Machine. Terminator. What is it going to be? It can't be bargained with. It can't be reasoned with. It doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear. And it absolutely will not stop. Until you are dead. Arnold Schwarzenegger in Terminator. Terminator. everybody and welcome to Geek Fest Rants. My name is Carlos Perón and today we are going to talk about two subjects. Number one, we're going to talk about Harlan Ellison and the film The Terminator. There's a whole story behind the writing and who influenced who in the process of the film The Terminator, the original one, that I never knew about until I kind of accidentally ran into the story. And I'm not sure how many people are aware of the the behind-the-scenes battle that took place after the film came out regarding the writing of the film. Then after that, we are going to talk about some Eagle Moth ships that I collect, specifically the Excelsior concept ships for Star Trek. We're going to look at a couple of ships that Eagle Moth put out of the concept designs for the Excelsior, the one from Star Trek III. And we'll talk about the actual Enterprise B, which came out of the Excelsior designs. So let's begin with Harlan Ellison versus the Terminator. What did I teach you? You are the Duke of New York. You are a number one. You will not laugh. You will not cry. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Can you dig it? Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. That spawn of Satan. <laughs> oh, really? The force will be with you, always. For a while, I've heard the story having to do with 
copyright claims or plagiarism claims of the basic storyline of the Terminator from Harlan Ellison. And after a while, the facts seem to have got together and finally come out. I mean, the facts have been out for a while. It's just a matter of getting around to them. Now, Terminator is a movie I absolutely love. Absolutely. From that first time that I saw it, it was just fantastic. All the way back in 1984, I think. It just blew me away. It worked so well. It had a fantastic story. And again, it's one of those situations where like, you have the perfect storm of a story, uh, characters, special effects, music, you name it. Everything clicked perfectly. But as the movie became more and more popular, and I remember back in... It could have been 84, it could have been 85. I had seen the film. I remember I once it came out on VHS, I would rent it. I would copy it. I ended up having a very grainy, blurry <laughs> version of it because of the copying. Eventually, I owned it in so many formats. But I remember I used to like freeze frame. I was pause it and try to draw the the designs of the robot and all that stuff, the endoskeleton. Absolutely loved it. And yeah, the movie was different. It was not exactly a high, expensive, you know, tentpole kind of film. It was a little bit of an indie, low-budget action horror, really. It 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 had this this uh, this like slasher John Carpenterish kind of feel to it. Very dark. A lot of it takes place at night. It's you know one relentless killer chasing you know the good guys through most of the movie. Granted, yes, when you go to the sequel, then it's like forget it. All bets are off. It's sci-fi adventure across everywhere. Similar thing that Cameron did for Aliens. He did for Terminator Two. But the original film was just completely amazing how it came out of the gate and just didn't stop. So I remember, again, a year or two after watching it, or even maybe the same year, it's 1984, and, and again, the type of person I am, I'm trying to consume anything I can get my hands on. And at that time, because this was an R-rated, you know, uh, violent, bloody kind of film, it's not exactly a very merchandisable type of property. I had the poster, I still do, the movie poster, the one sheet, and I had the the album, the soundtrack, and I actually bought, and I still own them, they're somewhere in this house, a pair of black gargoyles. Uh, the same gargoyles that, that Schwarzenegger had. It's just amazing. But again, there, there wasn't much back then. They just didn't have, they didn't have uh, much in terms of merchandising for this thing. Granted, through the years, they put out a lot of stuff that now it's like, yeah, okay, whatever. It's They, they go crazy with it, now, especially with all the sequels. But back then, you know, you try to look for anything. And there was no official making of uh, special because this wasn't like Star Wars or, or, or Raiders of Lost Ark. Uh, there was nothing. It was just basically nothing. Here's your movie. Go watch it. Give me your five bucks. Go watch it and get out of here. <laughs> But I remember searching through channels to see if there's anything, you know, okay, I just watched The Terminator and it's amazing. I wonder if there are any movies kind of like this, as good as this. And out of nowhere, I remember one night possibly recording and watching something called Cyborg 2087 because it had something to do 
with robots and they have the word cyborg in it. But before we talk about this movie, let's talk about the plagiarism claims. So from the research that you guys can do, I've done it, I've looked at it, I've listened to the interviews. According to Harlan Ellison, a little before Terminator came out, so this would have been sometime maybe 83, 84, because Ellison was in the business, he would always get a heads up about stuff that's coming out in movies and books, you know, publishing and this and that, scripts, because he, you know, he'd, he'd done a lot of scripts, that there was a movie about to come out that seemed to have certain things related or very similar to some of Ellison's earlier work, specifically his earlier work on The Outer Limits. So... The story goes that he tried to get a copy of the script through either his agent, his manager, or his lawyer. Somebody tried to request a script. And, and, and according to him, this is something that's not very unusual because sometimes, you know, people want to see something. And it's not like your average movie fan is the one that's requesting this. This isn't, you know, it's a business representative who wants to kind of check things to make sure nothing is, you know, being lifted or plagiarized or anything like that. And he got the feeling or the reaction that he got was very much that he was getting the runaround, that nobody wanted to show him an advanced copy of this uh, script for this movie that was about to come out. So around the time that the movie premieres, he also claims that he was, you know, he's used to getting passes, press passes, because he is part of the the business and, and he normally would get passes to you know, new films and this and that. And for whatever reason, again, he was getting the runaround. But he ended up going to a special screening. And he says that, I think he said something like, he went in as the guest of Leonard Moulton, the the, the movie reviewer that used to be in uh, On Entertainment Tonight. I don't even know if Entertainment Tonight still exists. <laughs> so what he says is that once he started watching the movie, specifically the beginning of the movie, he felt like there were entire sequences that were lifted directly from specifically the episode Soldier from The Outer Limits. And this is an episode he wrote back in 1964. He actually wrote it as a short story, I believe, and then adapted it for The Outer Limits. And there was also a claim that there was another episode of The Outer Limits called The Demon with the Glass Hand also from 1964, that deals with a man who is a robot that has this robotic mechanical arm. He's from the future. He travels in time. The first story also is about soldiers from the future coming to the present and they're battling in the present because they want to fix, you know, with the possibility of fixing the future. You know, that, again, these are themes that kind of reoccur in both of these uh, adaptations of his, and now they're showing up in this Hollywood movie, you know, 20 years later. With the episode Soldier, it's amazing because the opening sequence it, it looks so much like Terminator in terms of you're in the future. Again, this is the Outer Limits in black and white, and it is very rudimentary in terms of, you know, very, very simple, basic special effects because it's a low-budget kind of show. You know, they don't have that much money, but you have an opening sequence of this battleground, this this post-apocalyptic environment, probably at night, a lot of smoke, demolished buildings and unusual rock formations, and you hear these lasers and you see these lasers being shot from the sky down to uh, locations down below. And 
as these lasers are firing on things, you start to follow a soldier who is running around, kind of like hiding and getting ready to attack. And, you know, back and forth in terms of dodging, you know, potential dangers and that sort of thing. And at a certain point, he's about to engage another soldier and they both get somehow zapped in time. And again, very cheesy, very low budget effects, but they end up in the present. Now, the present in this episode is 1964. So you have one soldier arrives, but the second one doesn't. So we see most of this episode through the perspective of the one that arrives first. And he arrives like in an in an alleyway in between buildings and he comes out and he encounters some people walking by and they have a bad reaction and he has a bad reaction and somebody falls down and this and that and the cops get called and the cops show up and he engages the cops and he shoots at the cop car and like disintegrates the cop car and anyway hilarity ensues <laughs> so this guy's on the run and eventually he's caught and he is brought in to a, a government facility to be interrogated where he tells them about slowly we learn about the future and that there there's this war that's happening between these two factions and it's it's, it's it's it doesn't seem to end it's an ever going ongoing war he also speaks a completely different language more or less so they bring in a specialist a linguist kind of to learn his language and he befriends him and starts to trust him and starts to communicate and things go haywire at the end and he escapes and and uh the second one shows up and they end up in a fight and they just seems to either disintegrate or travel back to the future or something and that's the the twist of the end of the episode but not so much what's happening during the episode, but the entire buildup. The entire buildup of this episode is very Terminator-ish in terms of the, uh, the the future war sequence, the arrival to the present, the fish-out-of-water reaction to the present, the reaction to the police, the police capturing him, the police trying to interrogate him. That is all stuff that you do see in The Terminator with Kyle Reese, especially with Kyle Reese. The uh, lead character, the, the soldier, is played by Michael and Sarah. And he is an actor that is very recognizable. Uh, he's been in Star Trek. He's been in just about everything. He has a very um, kind of ethnic face, so he can play all kinds of um, different kind of characters. You know, again, the, the budget uh, is a little limiting. So, you know, he's got this, this what looks like armor chest plate and this simple kind of uh, outfit and a helmet that looks way over the top. It looks so silly, you know, sci-fi cliche kind of helmet. But he's got these weird hair things where it's kind of like you see the hairline, but you also see these these extra like strands of hair that kind of come out through his forehead to the top. Weird, weird. Again, they're trying to make him look futuristic. And again, that's what you got at that time. Uh, if you see his face, you will recognize he will show up in just about every television show you can think of. And you also have as one of the uh, characters that at least I recognized, Tim O'Connor, who I remember as Dr. Hewer in um, Buck Rogers. He's one of these actors that kind of always looks old. <laughs> like Don Knotts. Don Knotts was always playing old. 
Abe Vigoda, always playing old. He would like you've never seen them young, and this is one of these actors that yes, ten years later he's going to look just as old, and twenty years later he's going to look just as old. But he's he's in this show too, and he appeared on just about every seventies and early eighties and sixties show you can imagine. Ironically enough, Michael and Zara also was in Book Rogers. He played Kane, you know. So these guys eventually will work together again. But you look at some of these resumes, and it's a who's who of of television of of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. It's it's amazing the amount of work these guys uh, did. So this is what you get with this particular one. The similarities are there. I see them. Is it enough, you know, to to um, file a lawsuit, which is what. Harlan Ellison eventually planned to do. He was going to file a lawsuit. He started submitting the paperwork. There's also a second episode called The Demon with the Glass Hand. Now, this one is the second one I was telling you about. Uh, this one starts Robert Culp. Robert Culp, to me, is more familiar uh, from um, Greatest American Hero. I know he also was in, in I Spy. Uh, he was in, a, again, a million, a million freaking shows. I saw him in, Col- in Columbo. I saw him in, the man just never stopped working. Uh, But here he plays this, again, there's the twist ending, but he plays this character who seems to to come back in time to fight these other characters that are from the future. And uh, the the result of of what they're doing will have an impact in the future, because in the future there's this, there's supposed to be aliens, I think, fighting. And... By the end of this episode, we find out that this character, this man, is really a cyborg or a robot that has this glass hand. But the glass hand is really like a computer. It's a mechanical, electronic. And to me, Soldier is more heavily the one that is uh, being influenced here. Not so much. But there, there are these little bits and pieces. Now, one of the things that Harlan Ellison explains is that he also finds out that at some point, because he used to work for Starlog Magazine, so he had friends at Starlog Magazine, and that at some point they were going to publish an interview with James Cameron. And in that interview, apparently Cameron said some things about where the idea of Terminator came from, and he made a reference to, oh, I just kind of ripped off a couple of uh, Harlan Ellison stories or Outer Limits stories. And he got word that that was on the interview, but that Starlog was getting a lot of pressure from the producers of the film to delete that part of the interview, and they did. But Ellison got a copy of the full transcript where it had that information. He also talked to somebody else. I forget the name of the other person. You'll, you'll see it on the, uh, on, on, the, uh, on the link that was there during some of the production of the film who again uh they were asked and there was and there was another person i think that mentioned that was like kind of like the the auto he was writing like a biography of cameron and again in a public scenario cameron is saying that the idea came from a couple of outer limits episodes so he seems to have a lot of good information uh most of it coming directly from cameron and he kind of says that you know cameron has a bigger ego even than him and that the fact that he's kind of bragging and saying these things is what primarily made him, you know, want to file this lawsuit. And the suit never actually made it to a trial. Apparently, between the producers and the studio and, and Ellison, there was a settlement. Uh, Ellison got a certain amount of money. 
I think he said something like sixty or seventy thousand dollars or something, and there was an additional five grand if he kept quiet about the story of what happened, which obviously he he had not kept quiet. He was willing to to forego that money to tell the story, and more important also that on any home video or future versions of the Terminator film. Any uh, showings on TV, any uh, DVDs, Laserdiscs, uh, Blu-ray, you name it, whatever format exists, there would be a an acknowledgement of Harlan Ellison, of, of his works, let's say. They, they weren't even specific to say his inspiration or anything like that. But yes, whenever you see The Terminator now, the original film, uh, or in any form of home media, it will come with that little phrase, you know, acknowledging Harlan Ellison. Uh, Ellison also states that, yes, you know, and again, you could buy it or not buy it. You could believe him or not believe him that he really didn't care about the money. If he would have been asked ahead of time, if they wouldn't mind, you know, using some of these elements from some of his films to, to cobble together this other film, he would have said, sure, no problem. Just, you know, just make sure you just write credit, you know, give me some kind of credit you know, on, on, on the credit roll at the end, uh, you know, thanks to Harlan Ellison or whatever. Now, again, you don't know if that's true or not in terms of would he have done that. And he says he would do that to anybody. So I don't know. I don't know if anybody's ever called him on it. I don't know if anybody had issues with trying to use a, um, an idea or a portion or something of his. Now, don't get me wrong. Harlan Ellison, who has passed, uh, was a very, very difficult, difficult person. Uh, I've seen so many videos of him and he would get into fights with all kinds of people and very opinionated and you know my way or the highway kind of guy so and but very entertaining he's apparently he was a good very good writer i i almost started reading i'm about to start reading some of his works but i knew of him more for his personality than his writing so yeah, it, it, it's hard to kind of put too much stock on how much do you believe or understand or who do you sigh for. The bottom line is that the studio settled. They didn't go to court. They gave him some money and everything kind of ended there. Uh, from what I understand, Cameron was never very happy with what happened in terms of he felt he, I think he pretty much despised Ellison for even uh, claiming uh, that there was some shenanigans going on. But again, they settled. So that was the end of that. But this whole story brings me back to the beginning of what I was telling you about this other film that I saw called Cyborg 2087. A pretty bad film. Pretty bad. It came out in 1966. So this is very important. It came out two years after Soldier and Demon with a Glass Hand. Low budget, cost about $100,000. To me, it felt very trekkish. And I. It's funny, I just recently rewatched it. I was able to find it, I think, on YouTube. Actually, yeah, YouTube, uh, the whole the film is so obscure and so bad that it's, it's, it's up there on YouTube for anybody to see. And this is around the time where Trek uh, was starting to air, I believe. And to me, like I said, it felt very Trekish because they're so bare bones about the, the locations and the props and everything is just like... Part of the movie takes place like in an, in, an, in an abandoned Western town. And it's like, well, that's because probably you had access to a Western set and that's all they could do. It looked as if they were trying to take advantage of whatever locations were available to get this done. The story, which, again, think about. 
is about a cyborg from the future who travels to the past to prevent some kind of catastrophic future event. He's very mechanical. He's got all kinds of uh, robotic appendages, <laughs> if you will. The robot is played by Michael Rennie, who is the actor from The Day the Earth Stood Still. Very good leading actor, very um, handsome individual, which is very unusual because, like, this is a very low-budget film. And he's like, I don't know if you could consider him a star, but he is very good compared to some of these other actors in this movie there that are so bad. I mean, the, the guy who plays the sheriff, it's amazing how bad bad he sounds. So the cyborg arrives, he overpowers the locals, fish out of water, you know, you get all that. The uh, the scientist or the doctor that is uh, uh, caught up in this story works for Future Industries Incorporated, a division of Monarch Corporation Research Today for a Better Tomorrow. That sounded so very Skynetish. It's Basically, they're doing this research into radio telepathy, they call it, the ability to control people telepathically. And in the future, you're supposed to uh, be living in a world where the government, I guess, has control of the people and nobody has freedom because they're all being controlled telepathically. And what happens is some of these, I guess you call them like rebel people. Uh, rebels who are rebelling against the government are able to send this cyborg through time to try to prevent this technology from being invented. Sound familiar? A lot of There's a lot of Terminator 2 in here too, uh, if you think about it. They do refer to him as a cybernetic organism. Again, that's Terminator lingo. That's all there. The lead actress here, her name is Karen Steele. And to me, she looked familiar, and apparently she was in a Star Trek episode of uh, Mud's Women. I'm looking at her, and the way she looks and the way she's lit, I'm like, it's like, this looks like a Star Trek. Again, the, the, the whole movie looks to me like a, like a two-hour Star Trek episode, like an extended Star Trek episode. And even some of the camera angles and locations and the props and the manner in which people speak, you know, you got a lot of that. Again, it's 1966. It's very of its time. You can tell they had no money because when the capsule arrives, it's a jump cut from nothing to the capsule being there. Or if the capsule leaves, I think it's the same, it's the reverse. They just disappear. So it's it's they they had they had no money whatsoever for any of this. You do get a scene where you see the hydraulics in the arm of the cyborg. And again, if you remember Terminator when he's in the hotel room fixing his hand. You see these hydraulic rods going up and down his arm, you know, that control his fingers. Then he has a scene where he, you see the, like this chest plate from, from his flesh to, to, to electronics. Again, this movie must have been seen by Cameron at some point because it, it's there. These elements are all there. They're, they're sprinkled throughout this film. And because this is a film of its time, and I remember I talked about this earlier when I was uh, reviewing the movie Countdown. A couple of episodes ago this movie has a scene where a bunch of kids they go to the uh lab and 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 because the parents are the the, the doctor is working in the lab but the but the kids are in the in the house and hey let's go dance so they they put on a record and everybody starts dancing it's like why 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 is it that these films always have to have a dance number or a musical number and it's like 
and it continues, and it continues, and it con- it was oh my god, it's just so bad. It's like uh, it. This is like watching uh, uh, Mystery Science Theater. The the level, uh, you know, the caliber of this movie. It's uh, Mystery Science Theater territory that you're looking at. And as usual, like always in this era, these kids that are supposed to be like teenagers, you can tell they're in their 30s. And it's like so awkward, them acting young and talking young. And it's like, it, it almost gets to the point where it's kind of creepy because the women are usually, the girls are usually younger. They're still nowhere near the age they're supposed to be. But it's even worse when they pair them up with guys that are so much older pretending to be young. It's just weird. You do have in the movie um, a sequence where the bad guy cyborgs now are arriving and they're chasing the good guy cyborgs. So you again have that dynamic of Terminator 2 where you have cyborg number one, who's a good guy, versus cyborg number two, who's the bad guy. There's also, I think... A very subtle political message too. this, I mean, uh, it's not the 50s anymore, but it could be leftover 50s Red Scare nuttiness because think about this. The bad guy future government's evil weapon is mind control and they steal your freedom through mind control. Okay, mind control. The doctor, the scientist that in the present is working on this project, unwittingly knowing it's going to turn into this evil weapon, his last name is Marx. And his assistant, his first name is Karl. So you have Karl Marx, freedom, mind control. I think this is a little leftover of the Red Scare, you know, 1950s. Kind of, you know, craziness, very subtly put through this film. Now, enough about the film. My question then becomes, well, this film came out two years after Soldier and Demon with a Glass Hand. Why didn't Ellison sue this film? Why didn't he say, well, listen, you guys are copying some of my ideas here. You know, the, the, the robots from the future are coming to the present. They're fighting in the present to prevent some something from happening in the future. But I've never heard or seen any kind of issue here. He did go after Terminator 20 years later, practically. So is it possible that he kind of knew that this film was so bad and the budget was such crap that there was nothing he could do about it because there was nothing he would ever get out of these people? Plus, it's also very possible that, you know, his his reputation as it grew as a, as a troublemaker, you know, writer, difficult to work with kind of writer, it built and built and built to the point where he did eventually, 20 years later, go after a little bit of a bigger fish. I've seen... Online, people arguing on both sides of the fence, some of them saying that, you know, nobody can, you know, hold a copyright or or claim that a time travel story only belongs to them. So, for example, could the uh, estate of H.G. Wells uh, sue Ellison because uh, the time machine, uh, you could claim that any, any time travel movie is ripping off the time machine? Yeah, you know, that's where you start playing with that kind of thing. And and given the reputation of Ellison as a as a very difficult troublemaker <laughs> that he was just looking to beat on somebody. Yeah, you could kind of say that too. But again, the fact that the studio settled, the fact that the studio didn't even want to try to go to court with this. They didn't want to try to defend this. I think the bigger problem here was 
Cameron and his big mouth. It is conceivable, and there's nothing wrong. There's absolutely nothing wrong with you writing a story, and the idea comes from your entire life span of ideas that are out there. You know, a little of Star Wars, a little bit of Star Trek, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and you have something else. Well, yeah, it is very possible that... He did get inspired by those episodes and maybe even this stupid movie I just mentioned. But the problem was that he seemed to flaunt it. And by using words as rip off or stolen or got it from or, you know, (laughs) and being so specific, not saying seven or eight things, but boom, you specifically mention Ellison and the Outer Limits. You are uh, making it so clear, and I think that's what happened here. I think what happened here was that the fact that he was so pompous and, like you said, his ego was huge, so he didn't mind uh, boasting and showing off in front of some reporter or something and saying those things. And then the fact that Starlog was going to publish some of those quotes and then they were asked to remove it by the studio... At that moment, now you have the studio being implicit in covering up something. So it makes them look bad. Not only does Cameron look bad, now the studio looks bad because it looks like they're covering for him and they got caught with their hand in the cookie jar. You know, if if Ellison truly did have a transcript of the full interview, there it is. That's the end of the story right there. And that is possibly why the studio decided to settle the suit. Now... This doesn't uh, take away from my love of the film. I absolutely love the film, and I, and I absolutely really enjoyed listening to Ellison's interviews and that sort of thing. And I, like I said, I am about to start some of his stories. I know that uh, since his passing, I think over a year ago, J. Michael Skrzynski now is the person who's in charge of, not of his estate, but of his publishings or in charge of putting out the last of his books, I guess, or something like that. He has something to do with the works or the preservation or the organization or something to do with the Ellison works. And I am going to probably start picking up some of his 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 most popular ones to see, you know, what his whole thing is about. Specifically, you know, things like this, that, that I actually saw them in a, in, in a television show. I mean, he wrote uh, The City on the Edge of Forever, for Star Trek, which is another one that he was very unhappy with how they treated it, you know, his materials. I ordered, I I just ordered the books based on his original script and a comic book that was based also on his original script. So you can compare, you know, the the episode to the the script, to the story, stuff like that. So it's a, it's an entryway into, into Ellison, but it's also, again, so strange how these things kind of crisscross each other in a bizarre legal manner. Are you a genre TV, film, sci-fi, horror, fantasy, toy, and convention nerd? Nerds! 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 Do you enjoy listening to podcasts? It rubs the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. (laughs) Do you ever wish you could co-host a podcast? Mom! Take it easy. Lower it. I'm not going to lower it. I have to do this now. I don't mind you playing it, but lower it. This just might be your chance. Somebody help me. Help me. Help me. Help me. Shut up. Geekfest Rants is looking for new co-hosts. If you're interested, go to our homepage at geekfestrants.com and click on the hosting icon for more information. 
You can collect them all. You are a toy! Battery's not included. Just get those wonderful toys. Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the six million dollar man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky. And I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each. One to display, one to open, and one just in case. All right, we are going to talk about a couple of Eagle Moss ships that I have. And as I've explained in the past, there is a method to the madness here. Rather than go crazy as I instinctively would want to go in terms of just try to buying everything, this particular line that I bought stems from the concept drawings. I, I, I try to follow some of the conceptual designs of ships that are somewhat prominent, you know, in Star Trek, and then try to get, you know, the representation that they have of those ships in their concept form. In this particular instance, they put out three concept versions of the Excelsior. Now, if you don't remember, the Excelsior was a ship that was introduced in Star Trek III. It kind of becomes a little bit of a punchline in terms of how it's used. In the movie, if you remember, the Excelsior is supposed to be the new flagship. And in the story, it, it's kind of fun to watch how Kirk and his crew are able to disable the ship and get away and escape that particular location while that ship, you know, is kind of like, let's go get them. And this is the fastest ship ever. And this is the best. And they kind of flounder out there because I think Scotty is able to remove a piece or something like that. And even through the story itself, there's little bits and pieces of how they're diverting just like, you know, all the resources for the ship to get it ready to go and blah, blah, blah. And then it kind of goes like, blah, blah, blah. It kind of flutters out there while the uh, Enterprise escapes. However, I don't know if it was known at the time that this particular design of the ship was going to get a lot a lot of mileage when you think about how far they were able to push this ship in terms of future movies and even television shows. Some of the television shows, this ship shows up again or versions of this ship. The ship is the Excelsior, but it's an Excelsior class. So that gives you the wiggle room to be able to say, well, it kind of looks like the Excelsior, but it's not the Excelsior. It's, it's an Excelsior class ship. You know, that's a little trick. This way you can kind of reuse the models, uh, which, you know, that's fine. No big deal. You know, but, but it gives us a little bit of fresh, you know, technology to be able to, uh, to experience. In the movie, I read somewhere that, from what I understand, one of the original ideas was going to be that after Star Trek Three, which... Obviously, the, the Enterprise is lost. The refit Enterprise, the, the, the Enterprise from Star Trek II, if you think about it, which was somewhat modified from the Enterprise from Star Trek One, A little bit, but pretty close. The idea was that we were going to move to a new ship. I guess similar to how some of the movies introduced new 
uniforms to kind of freshen things up. But at a certain point, it was decided that it was it would have been too much, you know, for people, especially for the fans, to lose the Enterprise shape and feel, you know, of, of the Enterprise. Keep in mind, again, we're not yet at the television shows where we were able to introduce new ships, where people felt comfortable with the Enterprise being a more modern looking ship. You know, that came later. So with Star Trek IV, by the end of Star Trek IV, you know, the crew gets their ship and they do tease the Excelsior. But no, they do end up getting another Enterprise-looking, I guess it's called a Constitution-class kind of ship. So that at least they can do another, what, two more movies? Star Trek V and Star Trek VI with a traditional-looking Enterprise, or at least a movie version of the Enterprise. Now, by the time we get to Star Trek VII, which is Generations, that is when they will introduce the Enterprise B which will now be a more Excelsior-looking Enterprise. But it's only kind of a bridge kind of ship because it's not there for our crew to play with, <laughs> let's say. You know, by this point, we already have the Enterprise D floating around because of, of the television show. So the only thing missing at this point, by the time we do meet the Enterprise B, is the Enterprise C, which eventually... It finds its way into the television show through an episode. But going back to the Excelsior here, in coming up with an idea for the Excelsior, they apparently took a different approach where normally they would have done a lot of conceptual drawings and then select which drawing to turn into a model. What they did here is that they created a number of drawings that were then permitted to go to model stage, not full-blown, you know, ready-to-be-shot model, but a three-dimensional model was created at ILM, because these are all ILM people that we're dealing with, so that then the producers and director, which uh, Leonard Nimoy was directing three, get to select and get a better feel of what would look better on film. Rather than just trying to figure it out from a bunch of drawings, they could now figure it out from a bunch of models. And the story goes that after looking at, I don't know, four, five, six models, they finally selected the final look of what they wanted it to look like. However, some of those earlier models that were built, were drawn, actually eventually made it into some shape or form of Star Trek. So let's look at the three models that were turned into Eagle Moss ships and how they kind of came about and how they developed. The artist that is credited for this particular model is Nilo Rodis. This is a name that should be a little familiar to Star Wars fans because he's done, especially, I think, for Return of the Jedi. I'm not sure how far back he goes, but I do remember his name popping up a lot in the conceptual drawings of, of a lot of the things that we see out there in, in Return of the Jedi. I mean, granted, McQuarrie is the godfather of all that stuff, and, and, and a lot of it has the McQuarrie cloud over it, but... They did break up some of those things, and they did bring in a lot of other artists, you know, in order to be able to bounce off each other. Obviously, you know, just so you don't get stagnant by, by doing the same thing over and over again. That's how Joe Johnston was very involved in Star Wars and Empire, you know, 
because of, you know, being able to bounce these ideas with Macquarie and some other artists. Well, Nilo Rodas was one of these artists that was assigned to work for Star Trek. And him, along with David Carson, were generally the ones trying to develop all these drawings. But primarily, the credit is given to Nilo Rodas for these specific ones. They created quite a number of sketches, but not all of them ended up being turned into models. Once they were ready to be constructed, they were turned over to Bill George, who is the model maker. And the story goes that out of all the different ones that were given, Bill George also did his own version of a possible design. So you had all these, you know, three, four, five designs done by the concept artists built by Bill George. And then you had the Bill George model that was designed by Bill George. And that eventually became the Excelsior. But without these other models, you can't have the final product. So in other words, through this bouncing back and forth process of artists feeding off each other, that's how you end up with a final product. But again, let's keep in mind that it was basically showing the director and the producer these conceptual models and then them selecting the one they liked the most, which was finally, like I said, the Bill George one, the one that Nimoy said, that's it. That's the one I want. Now, the first concept model that they sold for Eagle Moss, again, keep in mind, there were more of them, but Eagle Moss decided to take three of them and turn them into, you know, die-cast representations of these. The first one they sell, they're calling it the Concept 1 model. It is not necessarily the first drawing that was made by Nilo Rodas. It might have been the second or third drawing that was made, but for, for the purposes of Eagle Moss, they're calling it number one. And what you have here, if you're familiar with the uh, Excelsior, is that you're dealing with a ship that is supposed to look bigger, more advanced, more futuristic, the next step of where an enterprise should go. And when you compare it to the final product, one of the biggest differences that I notice is the fact that, first of all, it has four nacelles, which is something that they try to avoid at first, and eventually they kind of slowly work their way to the four nacelle design through Star Trek history. But at this point, they didn't go for it. They stayed away from it. But you do have that configuration here. And it's also a very long, like stretched out kind of design. The dish is still very reminiscent of the Enterprise dish design. But the way that it connects to the deflector and nacelles, they're kind of way, way, way back there. So that was a really interesting little design that they used. From what I understand, later on in Next Generation, they were able to use this model, because obviously they don't throw anything out, but they were able to use this model in a scene from Unification Part 1, where they have, I think they have like a space debris field of ships that are broken or whatever, and one of them that they use, you know, you don't get a clear, clear look at, but they did use it as a background ship, is that particular model, which is kind of cool, obviously. It's not supposed to be the Excelsior, but it's just another floating kind of ship. I wouldn't be surprised, and it fits. The, the, one, that's one of the greatest things about these models and these concepts is that they fit. They feel like they fit. So again, 
this was the one of the first tries, one of the contenders. Then you have a second version of the Excelsior, again by Nilo Rodas, that to me looks a little bit like the Discovery. It, it seems to have a more triangular body. Uh, there's more real estate there in, in almost a triangular shape, almost. Not exactly, but almost. The saucer section is a little more in scale to the rest of the ship. You don't have that long, long neck that you had on that first one. You're still dealing with four nacelles. However, the nacelles are a little closer now because they didn't have that long neck like I mentioned. But the deflector is also far away than we're used to, just like in the first concept design. And the nacelles also kind of, just like the first one, they kind of end in a sort of a point, a pointy side. So that's kind of cool that they were able to incorporate something like that into this particular version of it. This design also was used, uh, I believe, in unification. It's possible one or the other, but it's possible they both were. Because again, when you're trying to create these debris fields with ships that are just kind of floating around, you just throw whatever you have at them. But like I said, the biggest feature that I see here is the the body, the triangular, almost T-shape body to nacelle connection, as opposed to a more straightforward, you know, rectangular going straight back, almost like a, I would say, railroad car kind of design of the first model. The third one, I would say, is kind of the most different of the three because it loses two nacelles and goes back to the two nacelle configuration that we're more used to. It also keeps the, what I call the triangular T-shape design of the rear and body of the ship, you know, what connects the saucer to the, to the nacelles. But the most intriguing change was that the saucer section was reconfigured at this point so that the rear part of the saucer becomes uh, kind of like a rounded off square. So it's almost like a, it's hard to explain. It's almost like a, imagine the letter D, for example. You have a round circular front, but a box rectangular squarish back. That's what they designed uh, for this one. Again, it's a completely different design. It kind of throws you a little bit because by removing the saucer design completely, it somehow takes you away, in my opinion, from it being Star Trek. It could be any other space show. But you do see the saucer there, it's just that it has more stuff in the back. Also, by removing two of the nacelles, this guy is very thin when you look at it from a profile. It's a very thin, thin, straight line kind of ship. And just like the other one, this one actually was used in Unification Part 2. According to the uh, book that I'm reading here, it was dubbed the U.S. Alka-Seltzer because they named it the Alka-Seltzer instead of Excelsior Alka-Seltzer. It was, a, I guess it was a joke for them to throw in there. But yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting how these, uh, you know, different concepts came. And then, and then, as I mentioned before, Bill George built his own version, you know, again, you look at these ships and you're like, yeah, there's a little bit of that. There's a little bit of this, you know, these, this and that. One of the things that he says that he did was that he kind of envisioned 
this ship, in terms of being built by the Japanese, meaning the style of vehicles and the style of transportation and the style of just the futuristic, you know, advancement in technology that you, I guess, were more used to in the 80s of Japanese design for cars and, you know, all kinds of vehicles like that, of what would it look like if they kind of gave it certain angles and certain aspects to it. And that's how he ended up with what he designed with his model. It uses a lot of things that are very similar. It uses the dish, the more traditional dish, but it also has two impulse engines, I believe, on the back of the dish. Two direct engines that you could see hanging from the back, which is really cool. The nacelles are more traditional-looking nacelles. They don't have the, the little pointy sides that the uh, the concept once had, but he stays with the two-nacelle design. The other thing that's a little different than the, some of these concepts that it's more traditional is that where the deflector is, the body of the ship, the nacelles are higher, just like the saucer is higher. You have that dip between those two sections to allow it to look a little more like the Enterprise of what we're used to. And the deflector dish is brought forward like a more traditional Enterprise, as opposed to these other models that had the deflector dish way, way back because they were scaling up the ship. They were, they were stretching the ship. And that's basically what we ended up with. This particular ship, specifically, ends up returning because even though, like I said before, in, in Star Trek III, it's, it's almost like the butt of the joke of how it's used. The fact that they, they make it so that it's uh, the best thing around, but it malfunctions because Scotty's able to disable it. Okay, fine. However, you move on to Star Trek VI, and it becomes one of our hero ships where Captain Sulu at this point comes to help Captain Kirk. And he now is the captain of the Excelsior, which is great. Uh, later on, I think it was Voyager, they had an episode where they do this flashback. I think the episode was called Flashback, where the, the they're flashing back to a, a point where Sulu is, again, commanding the Excelsior on a different mission with different, you know, uh, some of the same crew are there and everything. But it is the Excelsior once again. So the Excelsior lives a pretty long life as far as that specific ship is concerned. The design for the Excelsior. So in other words, the Excelsior class ship will show up through many incarnations of the television show, DS9, you know, anything of that era, of that post-movie era, as a different ship. It will come in and out here or there. Small, you know, not hugely flashy or anything. Not the center of attention. By the time we get to Star Trek Generations, the seventh film, we have the Enterprise B. And as I mentioned before, because this was a transitioning kind of movie... This is not going to be the hero ship for our crew. This is going to be a different storyline of a different crew taking this ship out for the first time. And Kirk is there to wish it good luck and blah, blah, blah. Behind the scenes, they are now capable of achieving that original plan of finally upgrading the Enterprise to its next model. Obviously done while Kirk is doing something else and not necessarily exploring the universe, but this way they're able to transition him out of it as if he never really has a chance or an opportunity or even a desire to step into a ship like this. As far as we're concerned, Star Trek VI is where his particular explorations went 
as far as the Enterprise, the ones we're used to seeing. This is the Enterprise B. This is the next step in the Enterprise evolution. And in this particular film, they use John Eves, which we've talked about him before, I believe, as the conceptual artist to be able to modify it. The thought was that they weren't just going to use the Excelsior the way it was. They needed to upgrade it in some shape or form so it's a little different, so it's a little flashier even than the previous version of the Excelsior. Not much. I mean, you look at them and they, you know, from far away, they kind of look exactly the same. But they did add a couple of new things that the other one didn't have. On the main dish, they added two more thrusters in the rear. So the, the dish itself now has four small engines in the back, which is cool. You know, it's something that you're not used to seeing coming out of a dish. They added these little fins to the top of the nacelles. I don't know, make it a little more slick looking. And the other thing they did, because it was very important to the storyline, if you remember Star Trek Generations, it's uh, the main scene in the beginning is when the, the ship gets hit with this energy wave, this, this tentacle power beam that slices off a chunk of the front of the uh, deflector area. That's where we Kirk disappears, triggers the entire film, more or less. Well... With the regular Excelsior, that area was a little smaller. So in in part of the redesign of the ship, what they did was they created that area a little bigger. They made it a little longer. This way they could have more detail. Apparently, when they shot the film, they had to actually not only create a model for the, for the ship itself, with and without the damage, but with the damage... They actually created an even bigger version of just that section so that they can show more detail. John Eves talks about also how the design for that front bottom part of the ship, which he made bigger, was inspired by the PBY Catalina flying boat from the 30s and 40s. And I looked it up and that's a plane that lands on the water. So it therefore has a more bigger, wider rounder bottom to be able to manage that water as opposed to a normal airplane that will have a very slick you know kind of thin bottom and that's the the inspiration of the bottom of the of the enterprise b being a wider bigger area and again behind the scenes it's because there's going to be this destruction that is going to have to be detailed and they need to build it bigger on purpose to show the detail so it's it's interesting how the technical needs uh feed the Creative needs and the creative needs, you know, vice versa. They go back and forth. Sometimes the things that look really cool and you think, oh my God, this guy's so smart and so creative. The reasoning behind it is not so much creativity, but the needs, the financial needs, you know, of, of the production itself. This ship ends up showing up only once and we don't see it again because these are timelines that are not that much explored as far as you know movies or television go they they kind of stay away from that from that ship because by the time again by the time we get to next generation we're already on the d and everybody's already hyped up over the d and then by the time we get a little further along in the movies we're on the e you know the the one that's on first contact so we're 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 kind of moving forward into more modern and slicker looking ships you know, as, as we move along. So, you know, th this is an area that they try to kind of move as fast as possible, you know, through. But as a bonus, I will tell you a little bit about the Enterprise C. What's important about the C is that it's the bridging point between the B, 
which again is the Excelsior looking enterprise, and the D, the one that we see next generation. And it was designed that way. We get a very brief look at it again in the captain's uh, meeting room, I think, where they have the profiles of all the ships, of all the enterprises. It's it's the, actually there. I'm not exactly sure when and how they put it there, <laughs> or if it was just kind of in the background very briefly or very uh, subtly. Uh, this way, they don't have to specify anything. But eventually, that ship had to be created for an episode called Yesterday's Enterprise, a fantastic uh, Next Generation episode. And from the design point, from the perspective of how to design that ship, it is simply the bridging point from B to D. And you can see it. You could see the way that the hull looks. You see the, the belly of the ship, the very sharp angle on the profile view of the uh, deflector area, you know, that rear deflector area. You could feel how the ship is changing into the more slick, more, dare you say, aerodynamic, even though, again, there is no aerodynamics in space. Uh, but that look of the D that we're mostly used to now, you know, of it being kind of like a I think they call it an art deco, you know, you go from a, from one to the other. But it is a perfect, in my opinion, a perfect bridging point. You could see those lines changing and adjusting, and the prof especially on the profile of the ship. I also like the fact that it, it almost brings you out of the Excelsior profile and the Excelsior look it kind of brings you back a little bit to the original designs, to the to, to, to the original Enterprise or to the A. With the C, you're, you're kind of getting back on track in a way. And maybe that's the intent all along. Maybe that's why they don't focus on the B so much, uh, because it is not a very enterprisey looking enterprise. But nonetheless... When you look at the whole thing, when you look at the whole progression, the Excelsior was there for a reason. It helped create that particular ship, you know, in that particular film that carried a few more films and then carried over way, way, way into other parts of, uh, of the franchise, of the Star Trek franchise. And it helped in the progression of the design of the Enterprise going forward. All right, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. We started off with Harlan Ellison versus the Terminator, a, a fantastic behind-the-scenes story of the writing or the claims of who actually wrote or who stole from who in terms of the film The Terminator. A fantastic film I absolutely love. And how upsetting it is at times when you learn, you know, I always say it, careful learning how the sausage is made because sometimes you might not like the process great great story by two giants uh, in a way of filmmaking and sci-fi writing uh, then we looked at the eagle moss excelsior ships that i uh, purchased uh, a while back and i wanted to kind of tie it all together in terms of the progression of because this is again one of the ways that i like collecting is seeing the progression of certain designs and with with concept ship designs even better you know you got to actually you can hold them and, and feel them and touch them you know and, and you see 
not only by looking at them, but the, the, the little booklets that come along with these uh, ships that tell you how they progressed, how they changed, and all the way how they moved, you know, through the Enterprise B, and then finally even to the C, you know, how that, that design kind of carried over. In a way, it's funny that, that I'm doing this episode now because I am also watching a History Channel documentary called The Center Seat, 55 Years of Star Trek. And I strongly, strongly recommend it to everybody if you're into Star Trek. It's a little weird how they put together the episodes. Right now, they're calling it season one, I think, which means maybe there will be more seasons. I'm not sure. But right now, you can watch four episodes. The first episode deals with the beginning of Star Trek, how it started, you know, the original series. The second episode deals with the in-between period, the animated series, you know, before the movie and after the show. So it deals about, it talks about how the show uh, lived on even after uh, the original series ended. Third episode is about phase two in the motion picture. They were going to go for a television, a secondary television series, but then they switched to the film. And then the fourth episode takes to the movies going forward. And it goes up until, I think, Star Trek Four. So it deals with two, three, and four. That's where the season ends, I believe. However, what's really odd about this is that, well, number one, I, I hope they make more of these because there's more history. You know, you have to look at the, the rest of what's supposed to be out there. But what's really interesting is that they also have these exclusive they call them history channel vault episodes which are the equivalent of full-blown episodes they're like 45 minutes a piece more or less one of them is like an hour and a half long so once you watch those four episodes you can then jump over now this might depend on what access you have to this this vault thing from the history channel i was able to go right to it with my cable box in terms of selecting, you know, bonus material, and then all of a sudden there are these four episodes. So I'm looking at the one. Of, I'm looking at them right here on my computer. Uh, one of them is called "Dancing with Syndication in the Pale Moonlight," and that one is a lot, a lot about DS9. They go really heavy on DS9. Then you have another one called "Cued for Q." This was a very heavy Next Generation episode. Then you have Starships A through Z. This is the episode that slightly deals with what we were talking about on today's episode here. It goes into the, the, the different ship designs all the way through the different incarnations of the Enterprises. Really, really cool episode. Then there's one called Trek Stars. That's about an hour and a half. And that's them interviewing as many Star Trek people as possible, talking about how they got the roles and how it was to act, you know, how to be there, all the behind the scenes kind of issues and that sort of thing. That's a really cool one. And now I'm looking here on my computer that there's a fifth one posted. It's called Voyage to the Delta Quadrant. And that one I have not seen on my cable yet, which means I'm going to have to watch this one. I assume it's all about Voyager. I'm pretty sure if at this rate, they'll probably put up one about Enterprise. And who knows, maybe they'll, they'll put one episode about the current state of, of Star Trek with all the new different shows that are out there. Because they don't ignore that. They just kind of focus mainly on what's happened before so far from what I've seen. So I strongly recommend it. I mean, this is the only way to do a Star Trek 
retrospective or a history of Star Trek, you can't wrap the whole history of Star Trek in an hour-long episode. Uh, this is the best way to do it. Turn it into a small mini-series where each episode can focus on certain things and then you can spend more time on them. My only concern here is that because these bonus episodes that are not considered, you know, part one, part two, part three, part four, if they're treated as this is the only way we're going to get that story, that's the only thing that concerns me a little bit is that maybe that's it. Maybe this is it. It's a, maybe it's a one season run thing uh, because they're giving you the backstory of some of these events as bonus episodes. Or maybe they'll just take these bonus episodes and turn them into a season two. But it's kind of weird that they would do such something like that. But who knows? Anyway, all I can tell you is if you're into Star Trek, this is must-watch material. Great, great stuff. So thank you guys for listening, and we will see you soon here at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. Gentlemen, you are now inside a time machine. We're about to take you 120 years into the future. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4. In three, three seconds, you will be projected into the year 2087. The incredible becomes real as the time curtain is torn away to reveal the 21st century to your startled eyes in Cyborg 2087. You are an agent from the world of the future. Yes. The whole thing's insane. Cyborgs, time capsules. Doctor. It's incredible. But true, Dr. Zellin. This hand has the strength of five like this. Cyborg, half human, half machine, programmed to kill. Incredible, you say? Impossible, you think? Who knows what lies ahead? You could find out when you enter the fantastic world of Cyborg 2087. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2021. <laughs>